And in Galatians uh, chapter 1, you know, last week we had those first five verses, this introductory statement uh, about grace and peace. And then we move on to Paul who begins really hammering home an important message for us. And so all of what we've been doing has been building up and we're, we're going to start talking about uh, during the book of Galatians what it means for us to be people of the good news, not just people who know it, who have heard it, who believe it, uh, or who assent to its uh, truthfulness, but people who are good news people, right? Now, if you can remember uh, the first house you lived in or the first place that you might call home, right? If you can remember that place, maybe you're as old as I am and there's no place that you can think of like that. I mean, for many of us, maybe for some of us at least, that's the case where you don't know what home is because you've never really experienced that. Or you remember it and every home that you've built ever since that day has been an attempt to kind of recreate that home again, that, that feeling of belonging and, and place. Now, have you ever known something to be so true that it was like a home, something that you can live in, a truth that's a shelter, it's a place for you to be, a place to make you belong? You'd, it's so good, it's so true that you put your tent stakes down, you'd make your home in it. The best truths are like that. They, grind, they kind of ground us. They, they put us somewhere. They make us situated. They make us belong. Truths like, you know, I mean, there are good truths out there, things that we want to live in, things that we think are important. You know, truths like living debt-free is the best way to live. Maybe you want to live debt-free or the truth of getting paid, what you're worth at work the truth of not being single anymore, the truth of having children, the truth of having free time, the truth of having a healthy BMI like I do, obviously. These kinds of truths are even more powerful than nostalgia. They drive us, right? These are the kinds of truths that we, we seek after. But what if, and this is what Galatians is really asking, what if, according to Paul, that there's only one truth that's deep enough significant enough, holy enough that it could change us from being a kind of people who live a nomadic, exhausting, wandering, homesick life. What if there was a truth like that? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you teach us this morning through your word all that you would have us know about the very best good news, the exclusivity of the gospel, we are only scratching the surface. And, and thankfully, Lord, you want to teach us. So we pray that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, last week, we talked about the way that grace goes before obedience, that uh, the very first words that Paul gives before he ever gives us this line of obedience and the way in which we should act and live and believe, he says, well, grace and peace first from God. This first thing you need to know, grace and peace are from God before you ever do anything. So we knew that was important. Now Paul begins to hammer away as he says, you need to be a people of this good news, this particular good news. That as a matter of fact, and he kind of offends us and others when he says, this is actually the only really good news. He, he starts off by saying, look, I'm astonished or I'm amazed that you've departed from the gospel to something else. And then he says, well, which by the way, that other gospel, it's not really a thing at all. You've gone and made your home in that truth. You've believed it. You've sunk your teeth into it. He says, now you've departed. Now, I think that's one, it's interesting because you wonder how many people Paul's talking to are saying, yes, yeah, some of those people have really wandered from the truth. Somebody needs to bring them back. And Paul's like, no, no, you have. You've wandered to the truth. How many, how many people would think that? How many people in this room? How many people in this pulpit? 
ever think that they've wandered away, that they've kind of departed from what's true. I don't think many of us would. So he's got this Galatian church, and he says that there's, you know, we'll learn that there are these troublers of the church, and they're super teachers. They seem to have a new powerful way to communicate what's most important. And they seem to be saying that if only you'll follow this kind of cultural life, if you'll make these cultural changes, then you'll really be spiritual and healthy and okay. Then you'll really believe the truth. And Paul hammers home by saying, no, there's only one truth. There's only one really good news. And then he begins to kind of walk us through it. So if the gospel is the very best good news, which is what Paul is saying, I want to be sensitive. I'm going to try to be sensitive to James first because I have lots of truths that I would like to believe most, all right? And you've heard many of them through the time that I've been preaching in this church. But I want to be sensitive to you too because anytime a preacher wants to tell you that this is the most important thing, we have to recognize we need to do that with trembling because we live our lives by certain truths. We love them, we embrace them. And as we've said before, every step toward Jesus is by necessity a step away from something that you love. That's just the nature of following the Lord. That there are loves that we have that God will call us away from as we follow him. So I want to be sensitive to that. This is hard to hear this word from Paul. But I think there's something good and helpful for us in it. So there's an interesting turn of phrase here, right? Paul says, we've departed from the gospel. And it seems when he uses that word depart, it kind of encompasses two ideas, which is turning away from and also divesting. So you've turned away from this truth. And it's a little bit ironic because Paul is calling them constantly to repent, which is the word for turn. So essentially Paul's saying, you have repented. What you've done is you've repented away from the gospel to something else. You've made a big change in your life. Way to go. You're believing something untrue. You're chasing after it. So Paul is saying, you're divesting. You're removing your significance, your validation. You're removing your heart from these places. You've moved out of the gospel. You know, the gospel was you living in that house that you lived in for 18 years or so, or some of us 26, 27 years maybe living at home or 30 years, and then you leave, you know, you get out. And Paul's saying, you've left, you've gone. And is isn't because we become mean-spirited or indifferent atheists. It's because What Paul is going to tell us is that we've become infatuated with other good news. So what are the other good news things? What are the things we're going to hold on to? Well, there's the good news of safety. Safety is good news. I like These are just cultural identifiers. These are not the only other good news, but I tried to summarize. There's the good news of safety. This is the idea that you can create a world where bad things, really bad things, only happen to other people, all right? Or at least you can so minimize them that they won't really be that bad. They'll be little trials, lowercase t. This is the good news of nice neighborhoods and backyards with fences. It's good health insurance, good diets. It's buying the safest, biggest, baddest SUV. No offense if you have the biggest, baddest, safest SUV. Or voting for whatever candidates promise to keep suffering as far away from you as possible. Even Christianity does this. Matter of fact, if, if kind of the good news, if the religion of suburban life isn't enough to make you feel safe, Sometimes you might enter into a suburban church where their version of Christianity is one that promises to make your life less dangerous, less risky, less hurtful. It's time, treasure, talent you can spare. It's prayer that never invites you to wrestle and weep, right? Just a happy prayer. It's discipleship and growth in Christ that never needs to walk the path of Christ. 
Even though Jesus says, if you want to wear his name, you have to suffer. Many of those things are good, okay? Safety is good. I'm not against safety. I like safety. I have two daughters. I'm terrified all the time, 24-7. And then when I'm not terrified, I'm asleep, right? And even then, I'm probably dreaming about it. I am worried. Safety is good. But here's the thing. If being safe wasn't the very best news, if being safe sometimes keeps you from believing the very best news, then are you safe? Are you really safe? Is it really good? Paul would say no. And then there's this other good news, this good news of success. Look, success is like a, it's a catch-all, and we all love it. The reason why we like success is because it does this. It allows me to keep score. Whatever it is that allows me to keep score, to say that I'm doing okay, especially in relationship to you, that I'm doing all right, okay? This is what success does. It says I'm all right. The news is good because it gives us a way to keep up. It, it might look like wealth or power or respect, any of those things. As a matter of fact, you know, if you're here, it's respect. If you're in Washington, D.C., it's not wealth. You might think it is. It's power. If you're in other places, it's wealth. These are our primary ways of keeping score, being successful. Now, these things aren't bad, but they're fine servants, Paul would say, and terrible masters. These are the other good newses that we want to follow. Now, it's not, a, it's not wrong to be wealthy. It's even good to be wealthy. The good Samaritan was able to be good because he could tell the innkeeper that no matter what it costs, he could pay it. Joseph of Arimathea was not unwealthy. He was wealthy enough to be well-known to afford a burial plot for someone he hardly knew. King Solomon's wealth is not necessarily condemned in the scriptures. Power is not wrong, especially when it's given away for the weak. Success is not wrong, as long as it's not the very best news. As long as it's not the very best news. So Paul's animated here, right? We see it here. He says, I'm amazed. I'm traumatized that you've turned so quickly. Basically, what he says is he says, you have not been converted by your Christianity. You have converted your Christianity into something else. And this is the great danger. That we wouldn't be converted by our love for Jesus but that we would convert love for Jesus into something else that accommodates our other good news. So Paul's concern is that they're trading home, goodness, something you can really live in. He says, you departed from this thing. It's something you can depart from. It's something you can belong to. You've left it for who knows where. It can't be the very best good news. We need to be repenting of the way in which we've tried to convert our Christianity to something else. So this is his basic argument. That's his basic argument. The truth of Jesus is exclusive. And that is dangerous for us. We don't like exclusivity. It's not good news in our world in general to say this is what's really real. This is what's right. If you need to understand what that looks like, just follow any social media thread during the fall when football happens. And everybody's conversation is about what's really real and what's really true, right? And exclusivity angers people, even about tiny little things like that. What about big things? About your life, about what's really most important? Everybody's got a way to tell you how to live. You know, follow this regimen. Eat this food, don't eat that food. Go to this place, don't go to that place. Shop here, don't shop there. Bring your kids to school, don't bring your kids to school. Don't teach and leave them in the backyard. Eventually they'll learn things, right? Everybody's got a way to kind of grow and learn and become grown up and to become okay. 
And then the gospel comes and says, look, here's exclusivity. Exclusivity is frightening in a pluralistic world. We have lots of little belief systems. So here's what it says. We don't have the heart to live in conflict in general. We're Midwesterners for the most part. We don't like conflict. We have conflict in the most polite way possible. And yet here's exclusivity saying, no, one thing's true and one thing isn't. The gospel's exclusive. So how is that good news? How is it possible that that's good news? Well, for instance, it may be good to eat your vitamins. I'm not making any professional health recommendation right now in the sermon, okay? I am not a doctor. However, it may be good to eat your vitamins, but if you begin suffering a minor myocardial infarction and you decide to eat a vitamin, even two vitamins, or the all-natural kale-based vitamin that you bought at Trader Joe's, or you eat Aunt Sally's greens because she swears that they kept your uncle alive when he was having heart attacks, well, you will be disappointed by the effectiveness of that strategy in general. You might not be disappointed because you get to see Jesus faster. But these things don't work. Vitamins and Aunt Sally's greens may be good news, but they're not the very best news if you're having a heart attack. Again, I'm not giving you health information. You can ask Jacob or Walt about this. Or Brian, who's also a doctor. We have lots of doctors. But anyway, the gospel, the reason that the gospel is an exclusive truth, it's, it's even better than that. The difference between the very good news, the gospel, and everything else is that it's not just a place to hide. It's not just minor information to kind of make your life okay. It's a place to live. The gospel is something you can make your home within. This is what Paul's arguing. He's saying, how can you turn away from this to something else? How can you depart from this to something else? This is where you live. The truth of Jesus is different than every other truth. Because the truth of Jesus is a person. The good news of the gospel is, pardon me, gooder, more good than any other truth. Because the good news of the gospel is a person. We learn this from the very beginning in the gospels. John chapter 1, the word becomes flesh. The word, the truth becomes flesh. The word is not content to just be a word. Jesus was not content to just be another truth you can follow. Instead, he becomes flesh. He dwells with us, covers us, makes a home and a place for us. Paul says it'd be tragic to walk away from that. The truth is a person. The truth can welcome you and prepare a place for you. If you're familiar with uh, the latter stages of the book of John in this high priestly prayer, Jesus prays out loud for his disciples and for us. And he doesn't say, I pray just that they would know the truth. He doesn't say first that they have to know this truth or defend the truth, or even tell the truth first. His, his prayer is that we would abide in the truth, that we would live in it, that we would find our home in it. And what you're seeing is the dividing line between the Christianity of Jesus and the Christianity we convert. Because in the Christianity of Jesus, we can live in that truth. We don't just believe it. We have to hope in it. We don't just defend it. Now, the great danger of these other successful and safe ways to live is that you can be in the middle of it and not recognize that you've sold everything to live that way. That you can't hear the good news of Jesus because the good news of being safe or well comes first. And so we need to be kind of kicked out of that. And this is what Paul is doing. He's kind of kicking out of that. If you're familiar with the Ramones, there's a song uh, uh, 
you know, I want to be sedated. It has this guitar riff uh, that 64 times it repeats the same sequence in the song, okay? And uh, I'm not making this up. This comes from a book called uh, Every Song You've Ever Heard by Ben Ratliff. And he talks about this fact that there are certain ways. He, he's a mathematician and he kind of traces the way in which every single song that's ever been written follows similar formulae. And the idea is that songs are made to stop you, to distract you from what you're doing in some cases, and to keep you entranced, or he says, ensorcelled in other ways, which I love that word. So the idea is when you hear a song like I Want to Be Sedated, that riff is so obnoxious that you can't ignore it. It gets stuck in your head. It takes over your life. And do you know that we have that same thing that God uses to knock us out? of our normal way of thinking about things. It is the liturgy of Sunday worship that is a repetitive hit again and again that you cannot ignore if you belong to Jesus that knocks us away from these other sorts of news and onto the good news. You know, you can imagine, I mean, all this good news, it, it has a sound. It does keep us entranced. You know, you're a third shift worker responsible for maintaining the printers, printing credit card statements at the local Chase Bank factory. Imagine that. And in the environment of that place, it has a sound, a very distinct rhythm. You get used to it. It's the sound of the world's good news happening. Something gets printed, something gets loaded, something gets shifted. You hear it. You can't hear anything else. You're used to it. Say you're a resident learning how to be a doctor or you're a fellow working a shift at a local hospital, the good news has a sound there. It's the chirping of happy families, the recovering patient, the, the monitors blaring, you walking out of the hospital to your car finally, after who knows how many hours, you walking in your door. Good news has a sound. And we have to be knocked out of that way of living, that that's the only good news we have. And that's the only good news we can live by. It's not bad, but it's not as good. We have to be reminded that there's better news out there. And the Galatians, in part, it's, it's a song meant to break us out of our other good news songs. You and I have to replace one kind of news with another. So our men's Bible study is working through a book uh, on the power of spiritual ritual for shaping us. Highly recommend it if you're a man to jump into the men's Bible study. Highly recommend it if you're a girl or a woman. A girl, that's terrible. If you're a woman... To, to grab this book, right, and throw it into your rotation for women's Bible studies. I'm really going to pay for saying that. Um, just hold on to that, right? Show me some grace. Um, I don't know why I said it. But anyway, uh, this book, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It has this uh, applicable idea that you have to have a sort of ritualized life in the same way that other things are ritual. And God gives that to us when he says, you have to hear the gospel and you have to have the gospel ministered to you over and over and over again. And there's this liturgy that we do on Sunday morning, this way, this repetitious way of doing things. The call to worship tells us that we're welcome every single time you show up so that when you show up one week and you are like, man, I am doing well. I have my quiet time. I read my Bible once. My kids are not crying right now, right? I am generally happy. I did not bounce a check this week. I'm awesome. And then another week you come in and you say, please don't anybody ask me how I'm doing. If I can just be in here and then get out of here. Both people get welcomed through the call to worship. I don't say as a preface, now listen, if you're doing well this week, 
those of you, or those of you who have tithed this week, the call to worship is for you, right? We don't do that, all right? Because the call to worship is for everyone who belongs to Jesus. And the call to worship actually is for everyone who doesn't belong to Jesus so they can hear what's really true and what's really, really good. So that every person who comes in the door, even the person who says, I would rather die than live by that good news, is called to come in and worship, see and hear and taste what's good. I need to know that God's love is like that. It has to break up that other good news that tells me I'm only as good as my last TPS report, right? I'm only as good as my grades. I'm only as good as how my kids are doing. I'm only as good as my physical health. I'm only as successful or okay. The news is only as good as I can make it. Do you understand that? Other good news, it's only as good as I can make it. So I need to hear on a Sunday, I need to have that broken up by that repetitive sound that says, no, you're not only as good as you can make the good news. The good news is good anyway. And it's for people like you. Well, it's not just a call to worship, right? We have this confession of sin. It tells me that my failures are not the last word on me. You can't get that anywhere else. I don't care. I mean, even the most loving, accepting spouse has their limits. But yet Jesus comes to you and he says, I already know the ugliness that no one else knows about you. You can bring your worst to me in confession. See if I can't forgive you. See if I can't wash you clean. Can you believe that? That's the very best good news. Okay, not only that, we need the word of God in the sermon. It strips us bare in order to clothe us. It tells us how we haven't really believed. It says, well, you know, I haven't believed either, and I'm the preacher. It says, let's believe together. Every week, every day, every crossed-up situation can be responded to by the cross of Jesus. This is what we learn. And then we come to the table. And people who don't eat right, who don't live right, who run away, who hold on to faith in Jesus by fingernails some days are called welcomed guests at the table so that they can eat and drink the goodness of God and recognize their need for him. So that they can be strengthened for faith. I have to hear that. You cannot get that anywhere else. I have to have that ritual truth again and again and again. And it changes the way I live my life everywhere else. Miroslav Volf, whose uh, theology, uh, whose theology was formed, his theology of forgiveness was formed in the Serb-Croat War of the 90s. He saw ethnic cleansing. He saw awful things happen in warfare. His concept of what it means to have good news was forged during that time as he's working on his understanding of the gospel. He says this. He says, we enjoy things the most when we experience them as sacraments, as carriers of the presence of one another. We experience, we enjoy things the most when we experience them as sacraments, carriers of the presence of one another. Part of the problem with us as we try to follow Jesus is that we have tried to follow Jesus without the person of Jesus, without carrying with him, without carrying with us his presence, without recognizing that as a person, he loves us dearly. We've tried to make it into just something that you kind of know, concepts that you can repeat. But you have to know that he personally loves you dearly. 
In the uh, Finnish-Russian War, which seems like a weird segue, but trust me, in the Finnish-Russian War, 1939, uh, a life photographer followed around one of the generals of the Finnish side, their, their supreme general, and, uh, and Finlanders would follow him anywhere. He came to a, check, uh, to a, a, a checkpoint, and he was surrounded by uh, not just a photographer or a scribe or two, but uh, also other soldiers, and he was covered just in, in crazy winter clothes because it was like negative 30 there, okay? It's very cold. This is what I know about war. It was very cold then. So he shows up, and uh, the, the, the checkpoint's been alerted. Look, you need to make sure that you don't let any spies in here. It's a very important checkpoint. So we need to check all their papers, and we need to double-check their papers. So he shows up, and they don't want to let him in. Here's the Supreme General, Finland, in the middle of the war. He's got photographers with him. It's a little embarrassing. They don't want to let him in. So what he does is he doesn't take out his papers. He doesn't produce anything. What he does is he stands up, he walks up to them, and he rips open his coat and his shirt to leave his bare chest out in the cold, negative 30 degrees air, right? And they let him in. And the reason they let him in is because he showed them by his presence, by producing his actual body, he said, look, here's what you know. I'm a Finlander. No Russian would do this, right? I'm your general. You recognize me now. And also I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm your man. I bear my chest to you. I belong to you. In the same way as we try to follow Jesus, we have to grow in our love for Jesus, the person. Not only do we have to recognize the ritual and be formed by the ritual and the liturgy of worship, but we have to love Jesus, the person. The only way we're not going to depart, you can depart from a conceptual truth, all right? There are plenty of people who believe the earth is flat. You can depart from conceptual truth. Sorry, flat earthers. I apologize if we have any flat earthers out here. But just understand that if a truth is only a concept, if a truth is not buried deep within a person, it can be turned away from easily. You have to love Jesus the person. You have to grow in your love for Jesus the person. It'll be difficult to make your home in the gospel if you neglect his person, his flesh, his presence, his bare chest. He makes this house a home. So when you see the person of Jesus, you see bones on the flesh of the very best good news. This is what totally blows any other news out of the water. Jesus says, you want to know what news is best? I'm here. I'm here in my flesh and blood for you. I love you. I call you my own. You have all kinds of doubts. Don't doubt this, I'm in the flesh. Don't doubt me, I'm here. When you're grieved by loss, it's not just a truth that says pain is not the end, it's a person who's been pained for you. If you pray personally to Jesus, if you grow in your love for Jesus, if you engage in conversation about Jesus, it will be harder to depart from the gospel. It'll be harder to ignore that the person Jesus loves you. Christianity can never be, cannot be. We have to push against this idea that it's a collection of intellectual commitments. You have to love Jesus. You have to see that news as the very best news. If you struggle with that, make an appointment with someone like me. Make an appointment with your pastor who also struggles with that. Let's talk together about what that looks like. We have to love the person of Jesus. Every other truth, that's what the Apostle Paul would say. It's not the greatest, best truth. Every other good news, every other concept, we have to make it true. But instead, in Christ, you have a home. 
a home for you. He makes you into a person with a home. He welcomes you. He brings you in. If you trade that for something else, you'll spend your life trying to make everything else more livable, homey, shiplappy, I don't know, whatever it is. You will spend your life doing this. You will spend your life trying to make homes out of other truths. I desperately need to hear what Jesus has to say. This is the home that made you. God tells us this morning, there may be other places, but there are no other homes. Let's pray.